I think that inadvertent or not, a lot of the issues come from the, the medical field just not treating people with the respect that they deserve and, and not, you know, giving people the, the rights that are afforded to them to, you know, do what they want with their medication, especially if it's not something that really has a high liability in terms of harming other people. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. If you ask many, many people whose lives have been upended by opioids, buprenorphine is a lifesaver. It can literally cut the risk of a fatal overdose by half or more in folks who have an opioid addiction. Also known as Subutex or Suboxone, buprenorphine is an opioid. It's one of the three FDA-approved medications to treat what's formerly known as opioid use disorder. It's a partial agonist at opioid receptors, relieving cravings with far less risk for overdose than other opioids like heroin, which are full agonists. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. With me today is Zachary Siegel, beaming from Chicago. Zach, how's it going? Hey, pretty good. And we also have Chris on the program today from Kensington in Pennsylvania. How's it going, Chris? Yo, hey, how's it going, guys? Today on the program, we have Molly Dornberg, a grad student at Yale School of Public Health who co-authored a recent paper called Demystifying Buprenorphine Misuse Has Fear of Diversion Gotten in the Way of Addressing the Opioid Crisis? It was published in the journal Substance Abuse last April. The paper addresses some of the hand-wringing from media and policymakers about the alleged risks and so-called diversion of buprenorphine, one of the best tools available for addressing the current overdose emergency. Today we're going to talk about what buprenorphine is, why people take it, and why stigma and fears that buprenorphine may be used illicitly are actually contributing to more overdose deaths. Molly, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. So I really liked your paper, and so it starts with all the ways in which buprenorphine is overly regulated and it makes it difficult for doctors to prescribe it and difficult for patients to get it. It also argues that fears of diversion are overblown and reinforce all these barriers. And so you and your colleagues write, it is rare to find a media article about buprenorphine that does not mention diversion or misuse. And yet, compared with most opioids, buprenorphine has a very high safety profile. So can you start by describing like what diversion is and why the media and especially the law enforcement community so often harp on it? Sure, so uh, diversion is sort of any non-prescribed use of the substance. So, you know, either by use not as prescribed by the person for whom it was prescribed or for other people. And I sort of got interested in this. So this summer, I worked for um, an organization called the Behavioral Health Leadership Institute um, that works specifically to improve the delivery of addiction services in Baltimore. And one of their projects, um, they run a treatment van called Project Connections at Reentry. So they come right out the door, the release gate um, at the detention center and can come right into treatment. Um, And that was done specifically because treatment was not being allowed in the facility itself because there was a lot of kickback from 
correctional officers and wardens and things like that um, because of diversion. So, you know, the the obvious sort of more logical and, and probably better solution, which is to implement it in the facility, um, was not being accepted. And so that kind of led to this alternative solution to have this treatment van parked outside of the release gate. But that was really kind of interesting that, you know, knowing what we know about buprenorphine and, and other medications and how effective they are and, and the great things that they can do, that there was still so much resistance to particularly implementing it in criminal justice settings and other, other settings like that where people really don't have access to what they need. Um, so, I, you know, I learning through learning about kind of this panic about diversion and that it was this horrible thing that was causing all these problems and leading to deaths and overdose and all these things and figuring out that that really isn't true and that it's a lot of uh, myths and a lot of situations being overblown um, and kind of putting into actual perspective what what risks are caused by buprenorphine and, and realizing that they're, they're not many um, was kind of what inspired this whole piece. Um, thanks so much for this paper. Um, I live in Philadelphia um, and spend a lot of time in Kensington, which is a uh, wash in uh, fentanyl mostly now, heroin and all kinds of other synthetics. Um, there's an awful lot of suboxone diversion, um, primarily because it's just not um, quite powerful enough to to handle the, the, the high tolerances that many people have. So mm -hmm. so while um, buprenorphine has been favored, I think, by the, certainly by the current administration over something, say, methadone, um, a lot of people will be, you know, put on buprenorphine and they, they invariably sell it. And uh, I've had many discussions with our transit uh, chief here, the chief of our transit police, who is kind of largely the only one really enforcing this to some extent, because a lot of the sales go on in his jurisdiction right around the train areas, you know, mm -hmm. where, where the uh, people come off the L and there's a lot of Suboxone for sale there. And um, I, I've tried to impress upon him that, you know, this is something that he might want to consider backing off because, um, you know, it's, it's sort of, in my opinion, you know, and, and what I've seen in my observations is generally people will buy this as sort of in case of emergency, you know, you know, if they're going into jail or to hold them for a day or two. Um, mm -hmm. I don't see anyone actually, you know, using this as, an, as a drug of abuse uh, from where I'm sitting. Um, right. So uh, to me, having uh, we need I, I would go so far as to say we should encourage suboxone diversion to, to the extent that we can, um, because it's, you know, it's one less chance of an overdose yeah i mean i definitely think in the absence of of better options there's no reason that we or anyone should be turning their nose up at something that appears to be working right i i, I agree um and and i find that um you know like i said there there is often two camps um and then there's of course the abstinence camp uh i don't think it needs to be that way i, I would prefer an individualized treatment but when mm -hmm. it comes to diversion we're we're obviously not going to see much methadone diversion is handled mm -hmm. you know in a completely different way uh, i i think buprenorphine is interesting because it's so heavily regulated uh yet it seems like it's like the it's one of the best tools for treating opioid use disorder there are other drugs, of course, methadone, naltrexone, and, and some would even say kratom. Um, but despite its effectiveness, buprenorphine is treated like plutonium. Um, it, it has all this stigma attached to it, which 
is kind of bizarre. I kind of want to unpack that a little bit. Um, just to give an example of how out of touch public officials are on this issue, Tracy Helton, she's the author of The Big Fix, recently tweeted, Last year I got invited to a panel on harm reduction held by the criminal justice folks. I'm from the health department. The official San Francisco policy is harm reduction. One of the panelists argued against medication-assisted treatment, harm reduction, and said people on buprenorphine shouldn't be around children. In June, they are giving this person an award. And I've experienced that personally, too, with methadone specifically. Like, a friend got a hold of some methadone, and another friend was concerned and said, he's got heroin in a pill. Uh, can we talk about some of the stigma and, and where it comes from and how to address it? People are afraid of, of what they don't understand, and so they lump all these things in together and assume that people who have had substance use issues are going to have issues with all substances regardless of what they are, and obviously we know that's not true, but I think people are pretty ignorant about the, really the good that these medications can do, um, and the fact that having that responsibility to take those medications is something that you can entrust other people. And if they don't want to take them the way, if they have other reasons for, for diverting them, if they have a friend who needs help managing withdrawal or something like that, then, then we should trust that people are using them for something that they need to be used for, even if it's not what people in the medical field sort of think that they should be used for. Because like you said, nobody's really using these to get high off of, that's not really something that you can do. And there are abuse deterrent formulations specifically to address that concern that, you know, it's really hard to, to really misuse buprenorphine, um, specifically like suboxone versions, which are buprenorphine and uh, naloxone together. Um, so, you know, the, I, I think I was really struck by how, how really overblown these fears were given what we know about it and given that what we how we know people are using it which is mostly to self-treat in the absence of access to better care yeah i, I think a lot of the stigma does come from sort of what you were saying like people just don't understand it and there's a lot of misinformation out there and a few weeks ago in the columbia journalism review i reported the results of a of a study that basically analyzed media coverage for over the last decade or so. And what it found was that like in more rural areas, the local journalism was more negatively slanted against medication treatments than like national news outlets. And when you go into mm -hmm. the local news and your paper sort of does this a little bit in the introduction, you do see that the people quoted are like prosecutors and judges and drug court judges and people who are really focused on this diversion issue and sort of invoke moral hazards. Like if we make this drug more available, it's gonna to lead to more of a, of a bigger black market. It's gonna to lead to more misuse. And, and it's, it, all of this sort of belies the fact that there's an overdose emergency happening and this drug 
and other drugs like methadone have the ability to substantially reduce the death rate. So I think a lot of that is coming from like the law enforcement community and, and this gets mixed up in articles where the local journalists are not quoting doctors and medical professionals. They're quoting people who see buprenorphine as like just another nail to hammer. I think, you know, even if you're, if you're going to take the viewpoint that even if you're not going to believe you know, people telling you out, you know, how they're using it and what they're using it for. There's a lot of recent evidence-based research that's come out. We cite a lot of them in the paper that, you know, like 60 or 70% of people who divert their buprenorphine are, you know, giving it to a friend who can't get access to treatment or using it on a different schedule because they're not, it's not managed well. And so, you know, even if you're not going to believe what people are telling you, there's been more research on this and it's so, I mean, I just don't understand how people can really argue with the research and still just try really hard to find fault with diversion. Yeah, I think uh, the, the irony is that some of these rural po populations that where you probably find the most stigma also have the least amount of experience with medication assisted treatment because it's so uh, unavailable in many cases. Um, I, I'll say it's it's nice to live in a city where it's that's progressive enough to give our jail population suboxone. Um, that being said, I, uh, I did an interview a couple of days ago about uh, the Indivier case, and I mean the real scandal here is is you know how high priced and and, and how uh, how hard these pharmaceutical firms fight to keep generics off the market. In my opinion, so um, it's turned into a you know a real cash cow for some doctors um, is turned into a cash cow for Endivier. There's finally in February, I think, um, uh, a, a new strip hit the market. Uh, but for the most part, um, you know, uh, even the formulation of naloxone and buprenorphine, two off-patent drugs, was kind of like a sleight of hand uh, because the naloxone does very little unless you already have uh, a serious, you know, pre-existing, uh, you know, opioid habit. It's not going to stop some, it's not going to stop an initiate from beginning with, to take uh, Suboxone for, mm -hmm. you know, whatever little nod they might get. Um, and we found here in Philly that the only place that was abused was in jail. Uh, so they came up with a really radical scheme. Let's just give it to them. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you know, so um, now that doesn't mean that there aren't people that will still take just about anything they can to feel a little different. That's mm -hmm. humanity. But um, I think it is important to nail home that point that uh, while we're focusing on the the users that need it, you know, I think too little attention has been placed on um, how it's been more than a decade since it, uh, its approval and and the cost of a strip of Suboxone twice as much as uh, the cost of a bag of heroin on the streets of Philadelphia. And I think another thing that just seems really logical to me, but I, and I just I'm so curious about why it hasn't really clicked for the people running these sort of crackdowns on diversion is that, you know, by doing that, you're driving the illicit market by making, by putting all these regulations and restrictions on getting legal access to medications, you're creating part of the problem, you know? So if you, you know, there's all these, there's not enough waiver prescribers, there's patient caps, there's long waiting times, there's uh, uh, step therapy, which is like that whole fail first model. Um, there's, I think like a dozen states have limits on lengths of time that you can be on buprenorphine. Um, implementing all those things out of the fear of diversion is just making the issue worse. 
Um, and that the best thing you could probably do to, if you're really looking to kind of cut down on the amount of medication diversion is to make it more accessible to everyone. So for me, that raises the question is, is this evil or ignorance? Like you, you said, how can people ignore this science? Like you literally go to Google Scholar, type in buprenorphine or buprenorphine diversion. You just read about this. It's all there. You can know about it. So all these obstacles that are put in place um, that are creating uh, <laughs> more barriers to people seeking treatment or, or even just not dying. What, what would you say? Do you think it's, it's malignant or just people are that lazy to look it up? I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure. I think that, you know, the, from sort of a public health place, public health and medicine don't have a great track record of treating people who use drugs with respect. And I think that there are a lot of assumptions made about, can you, can you give people who use drugs the responsibility of taking home medication? And there, you know, and I think that there's been this whole history of, making it hard for people to want to be in a, a medical setting in a clinic or a hospital. And so I I think that inadvertent or not, a lot of the issues come from the the medical field just not treating people with the respect that they deserve and and not, you know, giving people the the rights that are afforded to them to, you know, do what they want with their medication, especially if it's not something that really has a high liability in terms of harming other people. Um, and I think that that has to be something that really has to be changed with from the, the, the medical and other related fields within that so that people don't feel so uncomfortable seeking legal access to medications and, and telling their providers you know, if they have diverted it and why. I, you know, I work at um, the Addiction Recovery Center, which is a, a clinic out, out of a hospital in New Haven. And there's just the, the guy who runs the clinic is just so phenomenal and that you know, patients just have no problem telling him, being honest with him about if, you know, this week they used or if this week they gave away their medications because he's really understanding and doesn't cut them off, doesn't, you know, ban them from the clinic. But that's still the case in a lot of places that, you know, the, the first time your, your urine toxicology test comes back abnormal, so whatever you should be taking is not in there or whatever, that, that you're banned from the clinic, you're put on sort of a probationary period, you're kicked off your medication. And that I think is really irresponsible. And I think that that's not creating an environment where people feel like they can be forthcoming if, they're, if they feel like their medication's not being managed well, um, if they know other people who are having trouble getting access to it. Um, so I think that's something that we have to take responsibility for, you know, as health professionals um, and, and fix that. I, I think um, a really good counterexample to sort of America's very restrictive uh, regulatory environment for this drug is France. So like France had a big HIV crisis that was connected to injection drug using. And after initiating basically like a national low threshold model that was basically buprenorphine on demand for whoever needs it whenever they ask for it. From 1995 to about 1999, the number of overdose deaths in France declined by 79%. And obviously they have a very diff different medical system, one that like actually functions, at, not like 
Americas, but mm -hmm. it, it's still like there, there is a way, there are counterexamples around the world of countries that don't take this punitive, puritanical uh, approach to drug use and see very good outcomes. And I always invoke France as one that, that did it. Not to uh, keep beating up on, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, but it's, it's really like a follow the money issue. I mean, everything that you just mentioned, Molly, it, uh, kicking people off of the clinic, um, that is counter to, to the, the messaging coming out of regulatory departments on this, you know, on, on how um, we, we know, for instance, now that it's okay to prescribe benzos, uh, benzodiazepines along with uh, Suboxone. And yet there are still individual doctors that believe it's not or, or that or that find that to be dangerous. Um, so, it, you know, we have Sublocade now coming out. So this medication compliance issue, this diversion issue, you know, I mean, ultimately, that's going to benefit. You know, I've had I've had addiction doctors tell me, you just wait. You know, eventually insurance companies aren't even going to cover the, like oral spots anymore once the Sublocade hits. You're, you know, you know, because of this fear. Right. So. Um, you know, not to make it this big conspiracy theory, but really there's only one, there's only one organization or, or sort of like, you know, group of companies that, that will benefit um, from this idea. Well, there's only one company or two that's, that, that now have injectables uh, that are ready for market. And, and you have to ask, you know, who, who benefits from this fear? Uh, certainly not the, the people that are the, the people and families that are impacted by addiction, the messaging coming out of Washington, and you know the FDA and 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 SAMHSA is is like don't kick people off because they come back hot. Um, there's you know counties that have stopped prosecuting diversion, at least one I believe in Vermont. So um, it's 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 sort of questionable to me, like who's even <laughs> continuing to perpetuate these myths. Yeah, and I I I really don't know. I mean, I think a lot of it again, like from. I don't know a lot about the pharmaceutical industry, but I know that from what I've seen, it's a lot of again, you know, prosecutors, police officers, uh, a lot of a lot of issues in in correctional facilities in terms of correctional officers and wardens and things like that. Um, and even commissioners. I mean, where I worked in Baltimore, they I, I think were really fortunate. They had a really great progressive forward thinking commissioner, but he wasn't able to get anything through because you know, the the COs are unionized and they said, we don't want to deal with this um, because of what we've heard about diversion. And so he wasn't able to get anything through. So I think that there's a lot of misinformation, lack of information, general ignorance, or I guess probably in some cases not wanting to believe the evidence or the science um, that really prevent us from, from making positive changes um, and doing anything meaningful in this area. Um, on the topic of positive changes, in, in your paper, you bring up the topic of mobile treatment sites. I, I think an overlooked aspect of drug use is that many heavy drug users are isolated from society. And part of that isolation facilitates self-medication with opioids or stimulants or whatever they have. It's not about euphoria. It's about survival in this complex, hostile, and sometimes violent late-stage capitalist environment. So some people are pretty removed from things like the healthcare system. And if we want to help them, it makes sense to bring treatment to them with these mobile treatment sites. Uh, so tell us, what would these, uh, if they're hypothetical or if they're functioning anywhere, what, what do they work? Uh, how do they work ideally? So the organization I interned with had a couple such vans, and this one I talked about briefly that's outside of the detention center. But it's basically this like 
I know it's referred sometimes as a hub and spoke model where rather than sitting in your ivory tower clinic, hospital, whatever, and making people come to you. And for so many reasons, there are a hundred barriers to that for perpetuated by the healthcare system and otherwise, but rather than saying, we're going to sit here in our offices and you can come find us if you want care. Um, I, you know, this whole spoke model, which is just branching that out and in whatever avenues possible, bringing care to people where they are. And then the, I mean, I guess the hope would be eventually they get really comfortable in that situation or they become more trusting of people um, who are providing their treatment and they can transition to a different type of facility. But that's also, I mean, I've talked with some people where that's that's not even their goal. If you're comfortable in, a, in seeing someone in a mobile facility, then there's no reason to to kind of shuttle you to a, a, a freestanding place. Um, and also, so this, this organization that I was working with in Baltimore, so what they do is that they um, partner with grassroots recovery programs and then will offer medication. Also, they'll have, you know, a doc, a nurse, um, come in like one day a week to each of these locations um, and just start offering treatment out of whatever grassroots organization is already there. And so they do that in a couple of places, that, a couple of places that host, um, you know, like peer support, peer recovery support groups um, that do like uh, employment assistance, housing assistance, and they'll just kind of really kind of bare bones show up with like a doctor and a nurse and a, a peer support specialist. And like one day a week, people can just come and check in with them and they can do inductions and they can get people started. And you're not forcing people to come seek you out if they want to get treatment. You know, it's your job to go find them and, and make it accessible to them, especially in a field that like has a history of not doing that. Um, so I think that model has been really successful um, in Baltimore. I don't know where else it's happening, but I, I think it would be really great elsewhere to just kind of eliminate some of the many barriers to to getting treatment um, in a hospital or clinic setting that's really just so inaccessible to so many people. Um, and there are also a lot of I, there are a lot of rules with a lot of treatment programs that are more rigid or more established. You know, there's you have to attend groups, you have to do urine toxicology tests, you have to, you know, do X, Y, or Z. And for people who are not interested in doing all those things, there's no reason they shouldn't be able to get treatment anyway. And so I think doing sort of low barrier, low requirement, easy access treatment through mobile facilities or these kind of once a week coming in to, to already existing um, organizations are good ways to just get people the medication that could save lives without putting all these conditions on it that a lot of existing programs require. Yeah, it seems like taking the treatment to where people are is sort of like the non-metaphorical meet people where they're at kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's also, I think, goes a long way to building that kind of trust that you alluded to earlier in the show that has been strained by public health and the medical community with respect to drug using populations. I mean, there's little reason for anyone using drugs to like trust a doctor or trust mm -hmm. someone who's, who's offering them help. They've probably been burned in the past, right? And then ironically, when sometimes one policy clashes with another, so we, we have a, a mobile Suboxone uh, unit here in, in Philadelphia. And when, you know, the, we had a, a series of camps, homeless drug user camps, and it was really easy 
to, to just go there once or twice a week. Um, now they've been shut down and people are just harder to find. Uh, you know, but looping back around to, to what you said um, about uh, these barriers, it, this is almost this, an issue where um, we need to begin enforcing regulations rather than, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, for instance, you know, under, under federal law, even outpatient treatment facilities only are required to do eight urine, urine analysis or urine, uh, urine analysis. Uh, tests a year, right? So, uh, Suboxone is a Schedule Three drug. It, it's it's it is available for up to five refills. Um, so, you know, we could make it a lot easier for people to get and receive and and benefit from buprenorphine um, and if we simply enforced the regulations that that they exist under. So, you know, there is really no reason for somebody to go back to a doctor every two weeks or even every right. month to get a prescription. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I think that's like kind of an irony is, is there's almost a self, there's almost either self-censuring doctors are afraid to get in trouble or in some cases, and I've seen it, there are doctors that are simply profiting, um, off of monthly visits and, you know, that, that only accept cash, cash for payment. Mm. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's two parts to this. And one is that there are so many existing re like restrictions and regulations associated with these medications that adding more makes no sense. And then, so not only should we not be adding more, but we should also really be working to dismantle some of the existing ones that just don't, are not effective, don't have any meaningful purpose and are just just really adding more reasons for people to not want to to seek treatment um and you know uh, i can only imagine i feel like that you know probably the majority of americans don't feel comfortable in medical settings for numerous reasons it's not you know they're they're difficult environments to navigate and so i i just think that adding all of these reasons why you know putting all of these barriers between you and what you need just makes it that much more difficult for people to get to where they need to be. And I think there's kind of, for me, those two elements of, you know, moving forward, policy should not further restrict access to medication. We should also be working to undo some of the, the regulations that are associated with these prescribing these medications and taking these medications, because there a lot of them are, are kind of needless. I would say. So have you gotten any emotional or empathic responses to this commentary? And, and what should people do if they want to help fix this problem of, of buprenorphine access? Um, so it's it's only been out for about two weeks. Um, so haven't gotten too much feedback yet. I, you know, I think people have been really interested in the idea that we're kind of going the wrong way with this. Um, you know, I think that there are some places in the country that are doing really innovative things. There's Baltimore, like I mentioned. I'm from Boston, which has a ton of really innovative things in in this space. Um, I actually got my start working at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, which is how I got interested in substance use originally. And they have, they're always coming up with new new ways to to make treatment more accessible to people. Um, but I think, you know, aside from that, there are just huge swaths of the country that just have no innovation in access to care. And I think that there's just a lot of misinformation and that combined with the fact that, you know, there's in medical hubs like Boston and, you know, New York and, and Baltimore, it's easier to spread proper information because you have people who are experts in this, who really know what they're talking about, who are compelling in terms of 
making their case. But in areas where, you know, in rural areas where you don't have anyone who's like an authority on, you know, medication assisted treatment or who knows a lot or who's willing to put themselves out there and sort of go toe to toe with law enforcement or prosecutors or people who are working to limit this access, there's not a whole lot in terms of progressive action happening there. And so I think that, you know, trying to bring some of these ideas that have popped up in some of these sort of medical areas that have a lot of that have a high concentration of hospitals and medical professionals and making those possible to execute in places where there aren't as many resources is really important. So I, you know, and I think also, I, I forget who, who mentioned it um, before, but, you know, in a rural area where you have one doctor for, you know, for hundreds of miles who, who can prescribe, those are the areas where issues around diversion should not be as police, because if you're not making the medication accessible to people, if it's so hard to get, people have to travel for hours, there's only one provider. I mean, there, there's no way that you can have a sustainable model where people don't have to divert for a number of reasons. And so I think that working on bringing simultaneously bringing more access to those areas, but also kind of relaxing those restrictions, given what we understand about how the limited resources in those areas, I think kind of have to go together. Yeah. And, and, and to sort of wrap up it and tie a bow on this, like all of the structural issues that really kicked off and kickstarted the overdose crisis, like in the late 90s, like all of these structural problems in our healthcare are also making it so difficult to even treat the problem. Like all the insurance companies like incentivizing to treat complex diseases with just give them opioids and send them home. Like like, like that kind of stuff got us into this mess. And now we're at a place where we're really trying to treat it. And our system and infrastructure just can't bear the weight. Like, like there's so, and especially in, if you're in like Appalachia or like the Ohio River Valley, which is like the quote unquote epicenter of this crisis. There's so many doctors who could just give you 30 hydrocodone and send you on your way. And those same doctors cannot give buprenorphine. It's it's sort of just like mm -hmm. such a mess and infuriating. So thanks so much for taking time to write a very sharp and, and, and great commentary about, about these issues. Thanks so much for having me. Molly Dornberg. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Molly, D-O-E-R-N-B-E-R-G. Grad student at Yale, author of the paper, Demystifying Buprenorphine Misuse. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks so yeah, much thank for you. coming on the show. All right. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Morath, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Troy Farah. Our co-producer is Aaron Ferguson, and our theme music is by Glassboy. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or on Narcocast.com. If you like the program and you want to support us, there are a few ways you can help. Tell a friend about us. Most podcasts become popular via word of mouth. Or give us a decent rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, you can become a patron at Patreon.com slash Narcotica where you'll get access to exclusive bonus content and help us pay our bills a little bit. We are so grateful for the people that make this program possible. We want to stay ad-free, and you guys help us do that. Thank you so much. If you want to send us a suggestion, tell us about using DXM to time travel, or just want to say hi, you can email us at tips at narcocast.com. 
that's all for now. Take care.